You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Her Money is supported by Fidelity Investments. Together, we're here to empower, educate, and encourage women to start talking about money. Discover more at fidelity.com slash it's time. Her Money comes to you through PRX. Hi, I'm Jean Chatsky. Welcome to Her Money, which is, as you know, our continuing conversation on money by women, about women. We are so excited to have you here. And today we're talking about one of my favorite subjects, behavioral finance. And I know behavioral finance sounds like a big mouthful, but if you've been listening to this show for any length of time, then you know behavioral finance is essentially a whole discipline devoted to figuring out why it is that smart people do not-so-smart things with money. It's been around now for a good 10, 15 years, but only in the last few has it picked up steam and started offering us real solutions for how to make changes in our financial lives to make everything better. Sarah Newcomb is a behavioral economist. She works for Hello Wallet, which is a unit of Morningstar. And she's got a new book out, which is called Loaded Money, Psychology, and How to Get Ahead Without Leaving Your Values Behind. And when Sarah's book first came out in galleys, somebody sent me a copy, maybe you. Thank you for that. I took a look at it and I thought, boy, this makes a lot of sense. How did you get interested in this world of behavioral finance and money and emotion? Uh, well, I think that like many scientists, um, I got into it to do me search. Um, I found myself at 28 years old after having put myself through undergrad in math that I couldn't get my finances together. And I thought, okay, this can't have anything to do with numbers because I'm very good with numbers. I love numbers. Mm -hmm. So I'm stubborn. And um, <laughs> I decided that if I could understand the fundamental theorem of calculus, I must be able to understand money. So I thought, let me just learn how the pros do it. And I used my math degree to get into a great business school, Bentley University, to study personal financial planning. And I learned money management, I learned portfolio theory, I learned tax law, estate planning. And even though I knew how to manage money, it still didn't have the power to change my day-to-day -day financial habits that were actually very self-sabotaging. And there was one class that I took called Psychology and Financial Planning. And that class was different because in that class, we didn't talk about interest rates and we didn't talk about all the things that you should be doing. I already knew. We all already know. It's very simple. Spend less than you earn and invest the rest in a nicely diversified portfolio. That's it. That's all you have to do to be <laughs> successful. I know. I, I feel like I say that until I'm blue in the face. And yet people can't do it. It's because it's not that simple because we are not that simple. And what I realized is that I would never get past my own issues with money, my own self-sabotaging financial behaviors until I figured out the roots of my emotional issues with money. And in that class, we talked about class tension. We talked about um, inequality. We talked about all the things that we are not allowed to talk about. But we finally, I was finally in a safe space with people who understood money and understood both wealth and poverty. And we could talk 
about our experiences with money, and that was what broke everything open for me. We aim to make this show that kind of safe space, so let me put you on the couch. What did you learn about yourself? I learned that I was afraid of money, and I hated it. Um, Why? Because all through my childhood growing up, money had been a source of a lot of stress in my home. Um, I was one of four children. My parents worked very hard, um, but they weren't really on career paths while I was growing up. And so they worked very hard at several jobs each. We never went hungry, but we certainly didn't have most of the things that the people around me had. And as early as second grade, it was very, class differences were very real to me in a social context. So from a young age, Money had begun to represent barriers and um, obstacles to my dreams rather than a means of achieving them. And that trend continued up until I couldn't go to college. I got into uh, the New England Conservatory for opera. Wow. Um, and I, I couldn't go because we couldn't afford the the bill and we certainly couldn't afford to take out that much in loans. Um, so I just worked at uh, dead-end jobs until I was 24 and could take loans out on my own. And at that point, at 24, you just don't start an opera career. Um, and so I had seen money as the barrier, and I was angry. And injustice and inequality, money represented all of those things. But not only that, that's why I was angry. But I also had come to fear it because having anything I didn't need in that moment, I felt incredibly guilty. I felt like I was personally responsible for taking money out of the mouths of people who needed it more than I did. And a lot of that came from the faith that I was raised in um, and a lot of messages that taught me um, to care for others. And this unspoken message that my parents and my, my culture had taught me was that you either care about people or you care about money and you have to choose sides. Wow. I, I'm listening to your story, and I've got so many follow-up questions fighting each other in my head. I'm Part of me wants to talk about my own life because listening to you express that, my daughter, who is 19 now, really had a problem with the fact that I worked so hard when she was growing up. And I wonder if her relationship with money will be colored by the fact that she felt like the need to earn a living took me away from her. Mm. How you talked to her about that? Um, I've talked to her about why I work and why I work so hard. And it hasn't really been a conversation about money. It's been more of a conversation about this is what I need to do to be a happy person. You know, that this is where I get enjoyment and this is one of the places that I get satisfaction and although I love my children I think if I um, didn't work outside the home I would be largely frustrated but it hasn't been a conversation about money but maybe it should be maybe but at the same time if that is the root of why you were working then that's why you were working I mean I have the same conversation with my daughter I'm a single mother and my daughter is 10 years old and I work and I travel quite a bit um, and I try to really be present when I'm with her, but I also, I think one of the biggest things that I've learned through studying all of this is that so much of the issues that we have with money comes from the lack of open conversation in the home. Um, it's, it is the, um, Miss Manners puts it as a third tier conversation. It is 
worse in etiquette to talk about money than it is to talk about sex and religion. Mm -hmm. And we know that from experience. We can talk in very broad terms, but we can't get specific. But even third-tier conversations can be had with your close friends and your close family. And I think that with our children, we worry that we're going to put a burden on them by discussing things that they were trying to shelter them from, uh, from needing to feel that responsibility that we want to take onto ourselves. But I don't think that we're doing them any favors by not giving them insight into the decisions that we're making. When you decide to work because you need to be working, that's a conversation to have. When you decide to work because you love to work, that's a conversation to have. Well, and and for me, I, I'm divorced and it was both. You know, it was definitely want to work, but it was also need to work and want to pay for college and all of those sorts of things. So taking a step back from my life, I said I was going to put you on the couch. I put me on the couch. What does a healthy relationship with money look like and how do you get it? Yeah, I think that's that's the ultimate question, right? Let me start with what I think an unhealthy relationship often looks like for many of us and then talk about the opposite of that. So an unhealthy relationship with money is one where we are making unconscious or knee-jerk decisions with our money because of unexamined stories that we're telling ourselves. And I, I think that underneath every single financial decision we make, there is a story that we're telling ourselves. And some of those stories are true and some of them are not, and some of them are healthy and some of them are not. And so, but if any of them that are unexamined can lead us to decisions with our money that may not be the best. And so I think a lot of it is just about having the courage to be as mindful about our financial choices as we are about other things in our lives, to think as deeply about the decisions that we're making with our money as we think about other decisions that we make in our lives. Can you give me an example or two? Yeah. So I think that one of the biggest practical things that I've learned to do that has reshaped everything in my life is to break down this myth that you need to know the difference between a want and a need. That is, it's this timeless advice, and it's so sort of on the surface true that we don't even question it. Right. But the reality is it sets up a mindset of scarcity, and it comes from this perspective that if you don't need it for survival, then you can easily do without it. And it sets us up to feel deprived. Because if you're judging what you can have and what you can't have by what you need to survive, what you're basically saying is the act of budgeting is going to leave me emotionally unfulfilled. Well, I think it sets up a, a real feeling of constant guilt. You know, it's not if we want something and I've sort of learned to frame it by looking at things we want and then things we really, really want. And if you can get yourself to the really, really want category, then, you know, this is why we work, right? We we work to have enough resources that we can enjoy ourselves and do the things we want in addition to filling all the buckets. Yes. Um, I think that there's a really simple shift of perspective that we can make that changes this unhealthy scarcity mindset of wants and needs. It's like a diet. Budgeting feels like a diet, and it's no wonder that we don't enjoy it. It's no wonder that the act of budgeting feels like a recipe for being unsatisfied. Right. A lot of people prefer to just call it a spending plan. Sure. And if you can proactively plan your spending, then you win. Right, because in that sense, you're focusing on what you're getting rather than what you're giving up. But I think that there's 
a subtle difference in language that makes a really big difference in perspective, which is that instead of understanding the difference between a want and a need, we need to understand the difference between a need and a strategy for meeting that need. Okay. Our needs are deep and fundamental and universal. We all need transportation, a car, a bus, a bike, walking. Those are different strategies for meeting that need, and they all have different price tags associated with them. And everything we do, when you look at your budget, and if you just think of it in terms of income on one side and expenses on the other, and you say, well, I want to be saving more, so I need to slash some of these expenses. If every one of those expenses is actually tracing back to a fundamental human need that you are attempting to meet. But they're not just food and shelter no. needs. I mean, you're talking about emotional needs. Exactly. And that's why I don't like the framing it in terms of wants and needs, because that sets us up to say that our emotional needs don't matter. So the dress that I bought yesterday, which I didn't, by the way, but I let's just say I bought a dress yesterday. What did that do? It what? probably made you feel confident. It probably made you feel like your best version of yourself. And this is where I think psychology can offer us a real great insight into retail therapy, because there is a lot of work that shows this connection between possessions and our sense of identity. So we actually incorporate the things we own into our sense of who we are. And because we do this, and it's not, this isn't an unhealthy thing. This is just what our brains do. And even the people close to us are a part of our sense of ourselves. So our identity, our brain's uh, understanding of our identity extends past our body and our personality to our society and our possessions. And so because of that, we are constantly getting, you know, life wears us down. Mm -hmm. When we experience rejection or loss or fatigue or just want to celebrate, we, it's, but I think especially when we're feeling down, when our sense of identity has been eroded in some way, we know intuitively that we can restore ourselves to feeling like the person we want to be by buying something that represents that person. So if you're listening and thinking, I need to read this book. Well, it's your lucky day. Sarah has brought five signed copies of Loaded. We will be handing them out. So here's the deal. Tweet me with just a sentence about why you want to read Loaded, Sarah Newcomb's new book. And our first five tweets will get books. We'll ship them right out. Let me just take a second, though, to remind everybody how it is that we are having this conversation. And we're having it because Her Money is brought to you by Fidelity Investments, which is focused on enabling women like all of us to continue to have these conversations so that we can better understand ourselves and take charge of our financial lives. If you visit fidelity.com slash it's time, you'll find a lot of conversations like this one with Sarah Newcomb. You'll find information about how to manage your money during life's biggest events and most challenging times, whether you're getting married or divorced or starting a new career. And again, that's fidelity.com slash it's time. We're back with Sarah Newcomb, author of the new book, Loaded. You were talking about the purchases and what parts of ourselves they feed. I find I take a lot of, um, I don't think satisfaction is the right word, but I relate very well to items that I bring into my home. Is that typical? Oh, well, I think I, I'm me too. And my my spending triggers, my challenges where I can really get myself into trouble are clothes because I love clothes and home items. But it makes sense. Your home is such an expression of yourself. 
and it is your space. And many of us, I know for me, what I've learned through this process of looking at what are my deep underlying needs, what are the ones that are really important to me? Beauty is incredibly important in my life. It's a very deep need for me. I feel comforted by it. I get a lot of enjoyment from beauty. And so for me, beautiful uh, clothing and, and having a home that is beautiful are really deep needs for me. And they're things that I have to prioritize. And that's where I think understanding the difference between a need and a strategy for meeting the need is more helpful because then instead of thinking, well, I don't really need this beautiful thing or I don't really need my home to look this way or feeling like we're somehow um, being irrational when we prioritize these things very highly, I can understand that actually beauty is a real need for me. And if I don't meet that need, I'm going to feel unhappy. So how the, the question with strategies is that our needs are very fundamental. They don't go away when you don't meet them. They only get louder and shout at you until you finally give in and do something to meet the need. But our strategies for meeting our needs, that's where the flexibility is. So then instead of a budget being a, a diet where you're just trying to get the numbers to balance so that you have enough in savings so you can meet your need for security... You are instead saying, this is a map. This is a plan. How am I going to meet all of my needs, physical and emotional, with the resources that I have? And so you become creative in the strategies that you use. So I've learned, for example... And this is very personal to me, but I can get as much feeling of beauty and luxury and and celebration out of a bubble bath and a nice glass of scotch and slow jazz <laughs> <laughs> than I would spending $250 at a really nice restaurant. How did you, and, and it's interesting that you said the need was beauty, right? Beauty is very important. And as I think about my needs, I think my needs are for calm and comfort in when I first moved into my house after my divorce it, it was this postmodern colonial with very tall ceilings and a lot of white space and I, I brought in a contractor and I said you gotta cozy it up you know you gotta build me nooks because I and so now there are these nooks all over this house um, and and that's where the nooks make me happy I sit in the nooks but I don't know that I recognized that as a need until you just started talking. So my question is, how do people recognize what their own needs are so then they can go and fill them? Yeah. Well, so this came, this insight, it was a huge aha moment for me when I was able to attach this to money. Um, I'm a student of nonviolent communication, which was developed by Dr. Marshall Rosenberg, um, and what the underlying uh, premise of his work was um, is that everything that we do, everything, is an attempt to meet a fundamental human need. And that when we communicate on the level of our needs, we have conflict with strategies. But we don't have conflict on the level of needs because we all have the same needs. And so when we can learn to communicate with ourselves and with other people on the level of needs rather than strategies, then we can come up with creative strategies to meet all the needs without strategies that impose on each other's needs. And so for me, it was just a fascinating exercise on how to uh, generate less conflict in, and, and resolve conflict in my family life. But then when I started to be able to bring that into 
my conversations with myself and ask myself, what is the need that's underlying this purchase? What is the need that's underlying this um, savings or whatever? I realize that it, it applies very much the same. And so the, there's sort of a rule of thumb in understanding what's a need and what's a strategy. And according to this way of thinking, a fundamental human need, it's not fundamental unless everyone in the world could have it at the same time. So at the time that I studied this, I was having a lot of conflict with a member of my family. And I said to the person that was – I had gone to a training workshop and I said, it seems as if they just really need to be right. That seems like their need. And they said, well, you can't both be right. Everybody can't be right at the same time. So what could the underlying need be? And I thought, okay, maybe, maybe they need to feel important. Maybe they need to know that they matter. Maybe they need to feel heard. And those are things that everybody can feel at the same time. Mm -hmm. And so if you ask yourself, could everybody have this at the same time? And the answer is no. Then dig a little deeper until you get to that, that place where you say, okay, this is something universal. We could all have this. So my cozy is really safety, right? What's Maybe your beauty? Beauty for me, I think, is um, – oh, that's such a good question. I think um, probably – I want to say safety, but I also want to say uh, joy. Mm. I just get so much joy from beauty. Um, and, yeah. It's a little like Inside Out, the movie. Did you see that? Yes, I loved it. it. Well, I loved it, too. But, you know, when you look at this child's mind and those core emotions that last with you your entire life, it's interesting. Okay, so we know the need. How do we still knowing that we have limited resources because money is always a limited resource, how do we best use our limited resource to satisfy the needs? Well, so um, for this, I think I will use an example of the strategies that I've come up with for safe shopping. Okay. Because I love to shop and I think I don't want to send the message that you know, there's a lot of a shop for fun or sport. Oh, I certainly <laughs> do. I, I, I do. And my husband doesn't get it, but he watches baseball for sport, which I don't get. So right, right. that's fair. So uh, understanding that sometimes that need is um, for a refresher of your sense of self, recognizing that and saying, you know what, I need to feel confident. That's a real need. And that's okay. And I love the hunt. And I love, um, again, beauty and stores. And it's all set up for, you know, they're beautiful. But you can get yourself in a lot of trouble if you just say, hey, I deserve it. I'm going to go out shopping. So what I've done is created rules for myself, um, and I call them my rules for safe shopping. And I've taught these to my 10-year-old, and she's really bought into them, and it's really fun to watch her uh, do this too. Rule number one, because I love shopping for clothes, I will never go shopping for clothes unless I have done my hair and my makeup and I'm wearing one of my favorite outfits. I need to feel fabulous when I go into that shopping environment. Otherwise, I'm going to look at myself in the mirror, compare it to all the things on the shelf, all the things on the mannequin, and I'm going to want to buy up that whole store. That is a really good rule. It's a really good rule because so many people shop when they're sad and and they feel like they've got this big hole and they buy something to fill that up. And so by having that be my rule number one, I do not go shopping when I feel frumpy or insecure. I can still go on the hunt for my new favorite thing. But even the act of putting on makeup and doing my hair, I'm reminding myself of my underlying need to feel like my best self. And so I do my best 
before I go out. And then I'm focused on the fun of shopping, not focused on filling um, my emotional need for uh, feeling okay about myself. Um, and if I can't get myself to a point where I feel like I could go shopping and not want to buy the store, if I'm feeling that bad, I'll get in the bathtub. <laughs> yeah, with the scotch <laughs> with and the, the jazz. Right? <laughs> exactly. Um, but so you have to – I think part of it is you just have to come up with what are what are some coping skills for you that work for you to meet that underlying need and figure them out before you're in that moment. I, I want to know the other rules. Okay, so the second rule is I give myself a budget that will not sabotage any other need. If that's $10, that's $10. You know, if it's a hundred, great, whatever, whatever the budget is for that moment to say, this is my safe to spend. And then I combine that with rule number three, which is I will not buy anything that is not going to be my next favorite thing. I need to like it as much or more as my favorite thing now. So now I'm on a treasure hunt mm -hmm. because I've now the limit makes it more fun because I'm not going to buy something just because it's a bargain. I'm not going to buy something just because just because I deserve it. Of course I deserve it. That doesn't mean I deserve to go into debt. Of course I, you know, of course this is a great deal, but that doesn't, if it's not going to be my favorite thing, I'm not going to buy it. And so it becomes this fun treasure hunt. And then the, the last rule is that I dress up, I give myself a budget and I take it in cash. I don't buy anything I don't love as much as my most favorite thing. And lastly, for every new item I buy, I donate or uh, send one to consignment. Um, so it's always reminding me of trade-offs, but it's also I'm constantly upgrading my closet. I'm constantly upgrading my home rather than just acquiring more things. That's fabulous. I I can't wait to have you back on the show. You are a wealth of information, and you make so much sense. So thank you for writing the book. It's loaded. Five of our listeners are going to be getting a copy. Um, Sarah Newcomb, where can we find you if we want more of you? Uh, loadedbudget.com is a great place. I'm also a regular contributor to Psychology Today. I have a loaded blog where I'm taking a lot of these concepts and putting them into article format. Um, so uh, you can read more about it there. We absolutely will. Please come back. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Sure. And Kelly Haltgren has joined me in the studio with your questions. Hey, Kelly. Hi, Jean. I um, I was going to say it feels like it's been a long time, but it was just a long weekend. It was a long weekend, and you also spent some time with your family at the beach. I did. I'm tan. You're very tan. Don't I'm very, say very tan. You're going to make no, my mother very upset. It's a beautiful glow. Yeah, that, well, thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. What do we have? <laughs> our first question today, we received a really sweet email from Lisa, one of our listeners. She writes, Hi, Jean. I'm loving your Her Money podcast. Thank you for supporting women of all ages through financial life. Yay. You're welcome. Can you discuss the benefits of an HSA versus an HSA investment account? Sure. They're kind of one and the same. So let's just back up a second and talk about what an HSA is. An HSA is a health savings account, and you become eligible to open one of these accounts if you have a high deductible health insurance policy. So just for reference, if you're buying a policy on one of the Obamacare exchanges, any of the silver or bronze policies is going to make you eligible for one of these accounts. And if you're getting one from your employer, many high-deductible policies are also eligible. Once you've got the insurance, then you can open an account at a bank or a brokerage firm. And into this health savings account, you put money 
pre-tax dollars that you will then use to pay for health care expenses. So the contribution limits for this year, 2016, are for individuals $3,350 and for families $6,750. But here's where the investment component comes in. You can use this money year after year to pay for your non-covered healthcare expenses. And that is a fine thing to do. And you get tax advantages for doing it that way. But you can also, if you've got additional money on the side, use your money outside the HSA to pay your healthcare expenses. And then let the money inside the HSA grow tax-free. And in that way, it becomes kind of like a supplemental retirement account. And when you get to retirement, you can pull the money out of the HSA at any time, pay no taxes, and use it for medical expenses. Or you can treat it just like a 401k, pull the money out, pay ordinary income taxes, and use it for anything, non-medical things. So if you have additional money that you can put aside for retirement and you want to get tax advantages for doing it, this is one way to backdoor your way into it. And it's a way that a lot of people haven't figured out yet. Wow. And I think a lot of people also confuse it with FSA, which is a whole different question and we don't have to dive into that. But with FSA... FSA is a flexible spending account, and that money is a use-it-or-lose-it account. You put money into it, and if you don't use it by the expiration date, it is gone. Gone. Not true when it comes to an HSA, and it shouldn't dissuade anybody from opening and putting money into an HSA. And I didn't know that the difference when you're taking it out years down the road comes down to what you're spending it for. I thought when you take out money from your HSA down the road, it only could be used for health-related expenses. Before retirement, if you take money out of your HSA for things other than retirement, there's a penalty. Got it. But after retirement, after 65, I should say, there is no more penalty. You can use it and just pay ordinary income taxes like your 401k. And if you use it for medical expenses anywhere along the way, you don't have to pay taxes on that money. Nice. Yeah. And we have a question from Rissa Rodan on Twitter. And I'd like to say thank you first because she actually suggested an upcoming guest. Oh. We're going to have Laura Vanderkam on an upcoming episode, thanks to her. Oh, that's great. You know, Gretchen Rubin had suggested her as well. So there we go. Great minds. Think alike. She then tweeted us a question. She meets quarterly with a group of sharp, savvy women to talk about money, which is awesome. And she would like to hear your recommendations for a curriculum or guide for their meetings. Ooh. That's actually a really good thing to do. I would just say find a book that you like, that you relate to, and use that to get into your conversation. So some money groups have used My Money Rules book, and they just take one section of the book each time and use that to get into it. But it depends on what stage of life you're at. And Kimberly Palmer, her book is Smart Mom, Rich Mom. If you're a group of young moms, I'd go with a book like that. We also have had Jane Bryant Quinn on the show, and she has a new book out about making your money last through retirement. If you're 50 plus and that's your focus, I'd go with a book like that. Great. Thank you. Sure. And let me just ask everybody or remind everybody to please keep the questions coming. We really love this part of the show. You can find us on Twitter at Gene Chatsky, on Facebook at Gene Chatsky, and at GeneChatsky.com. Thanks, Kelly. Thank you.
Thanks so much for your questions. And now it's time to thrive. And today we're going to talk through the four most common money fights that women have. But before we dive in, I want all of you to know conflict is not a bad thing, especially when it comes to money, because you have priorities about what you want to do with your money and what you want your money to do for you. And those priorities don't always align with your partner's priorities or your family's or your friends. That's okay. What's important is how you resolve these conflicts. So are you ready to rumble? All right. Fight number one, spender versus saver. One of you likes to spend, the other one likes to save. Remember, this was the case for Jennifer Weiner and her husband. And research shows tightwads and spendthrifts, they tend to attract. Your solution is to know how both of you, and both is the big word here, both of you want your combined resources to be used. Map out what you want in the future this year, five years from now, 10 years from now, and figure out how you're going to use your joint resources to get there. Then revisit every three months or so to keep you on the same page. Fight number two, the power grab. One of you may earn more than the other. One of you might be the sole earner or have just assumed the dominant role in the family finances. The solution, regardless of who's the breadwinner, you have to realize that each person in the relationship has value and that each person should have both some financial autonomy, which means money they can do what they want with, and also financial responsibility, whether it's paying bills, managing a retirement account, or being the point person for the accountant. Those two things will level the playing field. Fight number three, caught in a lie. Yep, you did it. You bought something new. You pulled off the tags, and then when your spouse asked you about it, you said, this old thing? Mm. Think Watergate here. The cover-up is almost always worse than the crime, and the sooner you can come clean, the better off you're going to be. Fight number four, risk takers versus risk avoiders. One of you is more comfortable with the ups and downs of the stock market than the other. The solution comes down to how both of you, and both is the key word here, both of you want your combined resources to be used. Map out what you want your money to do for you this year, in five years, in 10 years, and then how you're going to get there. Revisit this plan every three months or so to keep you on the same page. Thanks so much for spending some time with me today. A big thank you to my guest, Sarah Newcomb. What a great conversation. If you were listening and thought, I've got to read that book, her book Loaded, of course, we've got five copies to give away. So tweet me at Jean Chatsky and tell me in 140 characters or less why you want to read this book. I promise you it is a good one. Coming up on the show next week, Randy Zuckerberg will be with us. Her website is dot complicated, but she makes it dot simpler. She breaks all the technology etiquette that you ever wanted to know down into simpler terms and explains to us how to get a leg up in the world of online, social media, all that good stuff. So tune in for that. I want to thank Fidelity, our sponsor, of course. Our music comes to us from Track Tribe. Our show comes to you through PRX. If you like what you're hearing, please take a moment to subscribe. 
share us with your friends and leave us a review. We will talk soon.